0: onto the show to talk about Montana's last best ride. Many of you will probably recognize Jess's name as a gravel cyclist, often at the front end of the pack of these gravel races. She's also the founder of JoJ Bar and currently is vice president of product and community development at both JoJ and Salt Stick. She's also a member of the Pinarello Scuderia Project and a longtime NV athlete. Sam Boardman. Not as well known on the gravel cycling scene, but certainly a crusher out there on the road. He's a member of the powerful Legion squad and riding very well, having won stage three of the Joe Martin stage race recently. The two partners have come together to create Last Best Ride as a showcase for the love of their home in Whitefish, Montana. I hope you enjoy learning more about this event. It certainly sounds from all accounts that it's a great community event. And a spectacular ride. Before we jump in, I need to thank this week's sponsor, The Feed. For those of you who aren't familiar with The Feed, The Feed is the largest online marketplace for your sports nutrition, offering brands you know and love from Scratch Labs to Clif Bar to Mertine, plus their athlete-customized supplements called Feed Formulas. It's those Feed Formulas that I wanted to talk to you about and make sure you're familiar with. Feed Formulas are personalized supplements for athletes developed in part with Dr. Kevin Sprouse from the EF Pro Cycling Team, following the same protocols the top athletes use. These are best-in-class branded supplements, never generic. You get personalized recommendations based on your needs as an athlete. They're all packaged in a convenient daily pouch, so no more messy bottles keeping organized on the counter. You just grab a single pouch, and it's got your fully customized order right in one place. You can go on the website at thefeed.com thegravelride, and save 50% off your first order today. On that website for Feed Formula, you can walk through what are the individual supplements that you need. They've got a base formula, then they have multiple different add-on packs based on your age, whether you're recovering, whether you're peaking for something. So it's a really great way to make sure you've got all the supplements you need and in an incredibly easy way to consume them each day. You're not going to forget anything in a bottle somewhere on the other shelf. Everything's in those personalized formula packages in their daily pouch. You can get 50% off your first order. Simply visit thefeed.com thegravelride ride. With that business behind us, let's jump right into my interview with Jess, Sarah and Sam Boardman. Hey, Jess and Sam, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, Craig. Thanks for having us. Hey, Craig.
2: It's good to be here.
0: Where am I speaking to you at right now?
1: We're in a uh, beautiful and snowy Whitefish, Montana.
0: <laughs> it's hard to believe I literally just had a pool party for my son this past weekend in California and you're still getting snow over there.
1: Yeah, we a little bit embarrassing, but Rose Grant is a professional mountain biker who also lives here and we tried to do a ride on Friday and we had to get rescued. And we know what we're doing, and we we failed. <laughs> no cool parties.
0: <laughs> yeah, not this time of year anyway. Well, as the listener knows, we always like to start off the show by learning a little bit more about your background and how you came to gravel cycling. And then I'm excited to talk to both of you about Last Best Ride and the big gravel event you've got coming up this summer. So Jess, why don't we start off with you and just talk a little bit about your journey to cycling and how you found yourself riding off-road.
1: Yeah, well, I'm actually from Whitefish, Montana, which is something not a lot of people can say. And uh, growing up here, you have an affinity for the outdoors, no matter what. I think most people who move here and raise families live here because they want to spend time outside. With that said, cycling wasn't a huge part of growing up here. I pretty much found cycling in grad school. I I went to the University of Montana for my undergrad, studied exercise physiology, and then moved to San Diego to pursue my master's in the same um, field. And it was when I was studying elite athletes in the lab and actually bringing cyclists into our exercise physiology lab that my curiosity was piqued and I ended up randomly doing a VO2 max test on a lab bike and and finding that I had the engine. I just needed a bike (laughs) and all the things that go with it. So one of my professors was um, on a mountain bike team and she helped me get started. And I started on that team and I raced Xterra off-road triathlon and mountain bikes for a long time. And then I had a professional road racing career after that. And Instead of officially retiring, I say that I evolved into gravel cycling because I think gravel is that area where you, you can be a pro without having to only be competitive. You can bring value to the sport in other ways.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So unpacking that just a tiny bit, first off for the uninitiated, explain exactly where Whitefish is located in, in Montana.
1: So it's up in the northwestern corner. It's tucked by Flathead Lake and Glacier National Park, which is a big draw to the area. We're about 30 minutes away from Glacier, what, like 90, 90 minutes mm-hmm. on the bike if I'm drafting behind Sam. Mm-hmm.
0: And then you're it's pretty close to the Canadian border. Is that mm-hmm.
1: right? Yeah, like an hour from the Canadian border.
0: Yeah, amazing. And when you were growing up, were you doing other endurance athletics, like running or skiing?
1: Yeah, so we, you know, and we'll touch on this when we talk about the mission for the last best ride. I grew up in, you know, a pretty humble family, pretty low income. So access to a lot of sports like cycling or skiing, it was a little tricky for us. There's a ton of community support here. There's actually grants for kids to participate. So I was able to do some Nordic skiing that way. We had an outdoor figure skating rink and I did some figure skating with some of those grants. But it's funny because looking back, I was always drawn to endurance. I just didn't have an example of what endurance as a sport or as a career would be like something like professional cycling. And you think that I would in in Montana, that, that I would have that. But it just really wasn't something that was part of our daily life. You know, my parents were focused on working and I grew up with a single mom. So that was challenging, but she did her best to get us outside. We did a lot of hiking and exploring here, but yeah.
0: Amazing. And then, so when you went to college and you discovered the bike for the first time, as you started to become involved in the the team aspects of road racing, was it immediately apparent that you had an engine that was better suited for the longer, more endurance stuff versus sprinty t- type stuff.
1: Yes, it's funny how you you learn that. I actually was a really strong climber, and I think that again goes back to the the VO2 max and lung capacity. But definitely, I like to suffer for a really long time rather than compacting that all into five seconds. <laughs> so th- that, those were the systems that I trained.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And then Sam, how about you? Where where did you grow up and what was your journey to the bike like?
2: Well, I'll
1: tell you that, but
2: first I want to add something to Jess's story that she did not add, which I think is the funniest part. The random aspect of her introduction to cycling wasn't so random. It was part of the protocol for her research was taking the temperatures of the athletes who she was studying and to do that, back in the day when she was doing it, the only way to do that was through a rectal thermometer. And I so thought that's
0: where we were going. <laughs> so
2: the people who were doing the studies, they were always super jilted because they would always come in, according to the way Jess told it, and they would say, "Well, have you done the test?" And eventually, she just wanted to say, "Like, but yes, I've done the test." <laughs> And that's how she actually took the test and how she was discovered by her superior supervisors as a very gifted endurance athlete. So people should know it was not so much random, but low grade bullying. And (laughs) yeah, I love it. It's, I don't know. I just, I like that because it's, it's similar to this rumor and legend that I heard about Alex house, where as an endurance athlete, everyone, everyone, who he talked to, who he told, I'm a professional cyclist. And he would tell them like, yeah, I've ridden the Tour de France and stuff like that. They'd be like, yeah, yeah, cool, cool, cool. Have you run a marathon? He, just, he always was just saying, no, I've never run a marathon. And then apparently, and this is what legend has it, one day he just woke up and he's like, gosh darn it, I just need to run a marathon. So that when people ask me that from now on, I can say yes. And he did and he like broke all his toes or something like that and just bled his feet. But the point is, it's, it's an important detail.
0: Yeah, now he's a reasonable athlete, according to the best people out there.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Do it with a rectal thermometer. Probably
2: not. No.
0: Well, you Uh. never know.
2: My, my introduction to the bike was a lot less invasive, <laughs> I guess you could say. It, w- it was brought on mostly as a way to fill the void that I had in my life when I left running. And I say left running as if it was like something that I chose to retire from. It wasn't. It was just my life in high school when I that when I discovered it freshman year, I you know, fell in love with it. And it just was everything that I wanted to do. And when it came time to apply to colleges, I realized like the only schools that I wanted to go to, having come from a very small private school and wanting to broaden my horizons, as far as my educational experience goes, were large state schools with very, very competitive running programs where I mean, they had these kinds of schools were pumping out national champions left and right. And if I wanted to be part of, you know, the A squad, the division one squad, I would either have to scrap my way onto the team so that I could just race B races, or I would have to run at the club level. And doing either of those didn't really fit my competitive zeal that I had accrued during my high school life in running. And I knew that it would also probably destroy the love that I had for the sport because it would probably just jade me to the point where I didn't want to do it anymore. So I decided to just try something new, find something different. In the meantime, in the summer between my senior year of high school and my freshman year of college, which having gone to UCLA, who are on the quarter system and they notoriously start very late, I had five months off between when I ended my senior year and when I started college. And it wasn't because I took a semester off or anything. It's just that's how the calendar works. So I had a lot of free time to figure out what I wanted to do. In the meantime, I was working as a janitor at my high school, and my parents had gotten me a fixed-geared bike to commute to work with. And I just fell in love with scooting around in the city and just finding the bike scene in Washington, D.C., where I grew up and discovering the bike in that kind of communal aspect and then finally come august of 2014 i decided i wanted to get a road bike because as is the natural progression for most people that i've talked to in cycling you wanted to be able to go further and go faster and actually be able to change gears and not blow your knees out of their sockets so i used the money that i would gotten working as a janitor and bought my first road bike went to california found the club team and just became obsessed raced the club scene for three years when i was in college until i got onto a domestically amateur team and then started branching out into more competitive national events and then i signed my first pro contract in 2019
0: amazing And shout out to Rock Creek Park in DC for a little bit. Yeah,
2: that's right where I grew up. Yeah, (laughs) Rock Creek Park. It's, I mean, it's funny. It's like I go back there very frequently and I basically rediscover or discover for the first time in some cases parts of the cycling scene, which is super exciting to me because having grown up there, you know, you think, oh, I know everything about it, but it's actually really cool to be able to go to your hometown and find something absolutely new to it in the sphere of what you love to do. And I, it's yeah. actually, Rockery Park is one of my favorite places to ride. It's right by my house.
0: Yeah, quick aside. I, I went to school at American University in Washington, D.C. and oh, discovered mountain biking. Amazing. Yeah. So I discovered mountain biking in D.C., which is very sort of counterintuitive, right? Like where would you find green space to mountain bike in D.C.? But as you probably know, there's all these sort of interconnected green spaces in Washington, D.C. that oh, once yeah. you sort of tipped off to them, you sort of do a little section. They're all short of, obviously, but you do a little section, that, then you go around next to some apartment buildings, you find another section to do, and you can do these neat hour long loops in the city.
2: Oh my gosh. I mean, I t- so much credit I have to give to my high school running coach to who instilled in me the kind of sense of adventure. And you could call it, I call it organic navigation, but most people know that as being bad at directions where it's basically kind of just, you know where to go when the road looks a certain way, or you kind of just decide you're going to feel out your route. And he was the one who introduced me to just looping together all these different routes. So, I mean, like you're saying, we would start in Tenley Town, we'd go down Glover Archibald Trail through Georgetown. We'd loop through all these little random back trails that kind of nestled themselves in the woods through spring valley and all these areas where it's just, you know, he taught me how to just have fun exploring during your training.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And another shout out to the CNO canal, many miles on that canal. Many miles on the CNO canal. (laughs) So great. So you, you've, you're racing professionally on the road. How did you find yourself in Montana?
2: So Jess, being from here ever since we would met, had always talked about wanting to go back. I mean, I think she can tell you that she never really clicked with you know, big city living or at least like being in larger urban areas, which it never really bothered me having grew up in Washington, D.C., moved to L.A. for college and then moved to San Diego. It was funny where we were living in North County, San Diego, Encinitas, that was pretty sleepy beach town in my mind. And Jess at the time was living in Oceanside, two towns up, which again, very small town in my mind, but there's still towns of 150, 200,000 people. And it's all, you know, part of one big conglomerate to call it, you know, its own town is kind of ridiculous because similar to LA, it's just, you know, San Diego County, LA become just massive giant cities with little pockets of populations here and there. But eventually when it came time for us to leave where we were living in Encinitas, she decided she wanted to move back to Whitefish. And she said, if you want to be with me, I'm going to be up there. <laughs> so balls in your court. So the decision was pretty easy. So now I'm here. But yeah, honestly, I have I think I've taken to it pretty amazingly. I mean, I love the riding that we have up here. I love the community that's up here. And It's just a very welcoming place that just champions outdoor living in every form that you can imagine. And I think what was really uh, important to me as someone whose life has revolved around road racing for the past seven years, it was, I think, a big step for me to try and find a place that I could visualize myself living where I could have fun where the road bike wasn't the absolute epicenter of my existence and you know this past winter I learned how to ski for the first time and my knees are still intact so that was sweet and I learned that I loved it and that really gave me a lot of I mean, hope is a weird word to use, but it did where it's like, you know, there is this kind of panic that sets in sometimes when you think about, Oh my gosh, what am I going to do when I leave competitive road cycling? But I mean, there's just so much to try out here. There's so much to yeah, do, and so much stuff to have fun with that. You know, I'm, I'm really glad that I was brought up here because now having lived here for, you know, a couple
0: months now,
2: it's just, it's hard to imagine being back in a big city. It really is, which is very odd. I always thought I wanted to stay in a big city.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. And and for listeners who live in California, California is this weird place, right? You can ride your bike all year round, very little interruption. In fact, it's hard to take a step back and think about having an quote unquote off season. Mm-hmm. Whereas most places elsewhere in the country, and in the world, you have snow, you have real winter and you're forced to do other things. And I remember growing up on the East Coast for me, that was sort of a healthier sort of cycle of the year, right? Because you just sort of naturally transitioned to something else, whatever it was in the winter, rather than just riding your bike hardcore all year round.
1: Oh, yeah. yeah. I was pretty nervous, even being the one that pushed us to move here. Of what Our long rides every weekend are so important to me. And to your point, I feel healthier. I feel it it is so nice to just take a break from those things because now I'm looking forward to riding more than usual, but it also is weird to not be so fit in May. Yeah. I'm used to being so, so fit come May Mm -hmm. and I'm not,
0: (laughs) not quite there yet this year.
1: Quite there yet. (laughs) It's also
2: like your life has changed too. Yeah.
1: My life revolves more around work. I mean, so
2: the thing that I discovered is, you know, to Jess's credit, like she's just, she's training differently now because she's working multiple jobs basically with organizing the race and her own full-time job and balancing training and competing. But to her credit, if she wanted to be fit and trained, she could. And that's just the thing about being in an environment that's not California, which is perfect weather all the time. You kind of just end up getting creative. Like you, you know, during the winter, Jess was doing a bunch of Yoga, yoga sculpts, doing some like gym workouts at home. She was doing endurance hit workouts at home. I did yeah. a ski
1: race. Yeah, you did I a did ski my first race. Ever ski I mean, it's race. just,
2: I honestly think that it, you know, for me and I, I reckon for Jess as well, it actually was very refreshing to be in an environment where bike racing and bike riding wasn't the only way that you could get fit. And it actually felt good going into the season, having not just ridden my bike and myself into oblivion because it actually got me excited for the season, whereas, and excited to ride my bike more like Jess was saying, whereas I found in, you know, past years, sometimes you get to the end of your base training phase, which for most Californians, I mean, their base training starts in, you know, October, November, and it goes all the way until January, February, where racing starts pretty early relative to the rest of the season or rest of the country and by the time you get to that first race of the season you're just like oh my god i can't stand training anymore i need to race i need to race whereas this year i mean i took some time off and then learned how to ski and that was like the first couple weeks of off-season activities was just learning how to do the activity and then doing those activities and actually staying fit in a relatively you know fun way that was new and then by the time i got the point where i was supposed to race i was actually really excited to just like be on my bike not just race but like be outside in the warm weather where my knees can be exposed to the elements
0: being part of the legion program did you find yourself had you hit the fitness you needed to hit for some of the late the races they had you slated to
2: i think it was in i would say probably not the fitness that i would have wanted but again it was more I don't think I was actually unfit for the races. I just don't think I was fit in the way that a lot of the people who I was racing against were fit in, in the sense of like racing fitness, because a lot of the riders coming from warmer climates who are doing those early season races that the program that Legion does in California, they've been racing since January. And I had literally yeah. like just flown from a blizzard And we had seen a lot of snow during the winter. And I was mostly doing like base training work starting in December, going through February to when my first race in Arizona was. And it's not that I felt unfit to the point where I couldn't finish the races. It's just like that top end wasn't there. But now, you know, having had a bunch of races under my belt and we're going into the next block, which is like the key block, the target block of the year for me. I do feel a lot fitter and I don't feel the same level of burnt out as I would normally at this time of the year where I'm just like praying hands and knees for a break after the last block. So I actually, I did feel less fit, but you know, I felt like I was excited to, to race again.
0: That makes sense. And then just for you racing gravel this year, you're part of a program. Do you want to talk about that team you're involved in and what your goals are for the year?
1: Yeah, so the Scuderia Penarello program is sort of a multifaceted program that emphasizes what I was mentioning earlier, that there's unique skill sets and unique people that deserve to have an opportunity in the cycling world. And so the idea of our marketing director of Pinarello is Kim Rogers, and she's just an incredibly... Hard worker. I have a lot of respect for what she's accomplished with the program in the first year and then leading into this year. But we're a group of athletes that range from competitors to adventure people to community leaders. So my role is a community leader. And basically what that means is I'm none of my partners none of my sponsors expect me to be winning races or on the podium. And that's something that I've communicated to everyone and they've, they've accepted, you know, I've had my time for that. I've been you know, trained really hard and, and won races and had the injuries and done the whole deal. And now it's what I really want to focus on is helping more people get into the sport making it a welcoming place where, you know, all types of people are accepted and have opportunities and just being able to represent amazing brands like Pinarello at large events is, is super important. And it's like, because I don't care about a result, I'm going out there to have fun and the pressure isn't there. You open yourself up to creating those experiences with people. Like I'm constantly on my feet in the sun before I do an event talking and hanging out. And my the energy bar company that I founded, JoJ Bar, is now part of a larger suite of sports nutrition brands. And my company kind of mirrors, we go to the events that mirror my schedule with Pinarello and support. So I'm also doing that on the side. And it's just, it's super fun to to know that we're in a place now where the emphasis isn't always on results. I mean, that's amazing. It's super cool. I still look up to the women who are crushing it right now. And I think that is great, but it's also related, more relatable to a lot of people who have families and work and see like they do, they do have a place and you don't have to come to an event to race. You can come to just ride your bike and meet people and you'll be accepted and you're not doing anything weird. You're probably doing what 95% of the other people around you are doing. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a good, it's a good, a good team for me, for sure.
0: Awesome. Let's take a two minute detour and hear about your company. What, what Can you tell us about like the JoJ Bar philosophy and the types of products that you make?
1: Yeah, so this is also a concept that after grad school, I decided not to do a PhD, which was the track that I was on like from high school. I knew I wanted to do this path and I was really into research and I diverted to pursue cycling and I had met a nutritionist who I worked with and she was a private chef. And so I started helping her kind of as her assistant at first. And then I ended up taking over her clientele when she moved away. So that's kind of the the piece about nutrition and being in the food world that is important to the story. So I had this background in exercise physiology. I, I started this private chef company. I started catering events and I really focused on just fresh food healthy food that people who wanted to be active wanted to eat. And I just took the guesswork out of it. So at the time, this was in 2010-ish, there was really no good energy bars out there. We weren't in this food revolution where there's like all of this amazing, all these amazing choices when you walk into Whole Foods or whatever. And so I thought, I wanted to create something that was delicious, that tasted homemade. My favorite things to eat are cookies or baked goods or stopping by the bakery before I ride. I also wanted it to make sense from a macronutrient standpoint. And so I kind of flipped the script on how bars were made. They were always really carb heavy before, which we need, but I also wanted to add in more fat for those zones that are more endurance. And I wanted it to be something that like was digestible and you could eat, eat a lot of it. At the time I had a coach who had Lyme's disease and was on a gluten-free diet. And so I thought, well, I'll try making it gluten-free. Little did I know that that segment was going to blow up in the future and become so important. So I created this bar and it was just kind of a rink-a-dink operation out of my kitchen at first. And I actually, some of my private chef clients helped me move into my first co-packer. And I was in a small co-packer down in San Diego and just grew the brand grassroots style within the cycling and triathlon community. And a big, the big win for Joe Jay was when we got into REI and I think we were accepted at the end of 2018. And, that really helped our the brand reach our people in the outdoor space. And in, let's see, I think of October of 2019, I was approached by this company called Elite Active Nutrition is the name now, A-L-E-T-E, which means all athletes, not elite athletes. And they reached out to me. They had Started this platform by acquiring an electrolyte brand called Salt Stick. Really huge in the triathlon world. I'm hopefully helping it become huge in the gravel world. So they reached out to me about acquiring JoJ, and it was a great fit because it allowed me at this point. I was caught up in all of the logistics of running a business. And also the logistics of being the hamster in the wheel of cash flow when you own a small business. And this allowed me to step away from that. And I'll admit, I don't love entrepreneurship from that standpoint. I just am wired in a way where I want to help other people and I want to do the right thing and I want a brand that does those things. And I really don't like the other part of it. And this, this company enabled me to do that. They said, we're going to take all of that. We have a team in place already. And then you can create your role in the company and you will come on and you will do that role. And so it was a perfect fit. They didn't want to take the bar and change it and you know, cut the margins and do do all the things that sometimes larger companies want to do. So I created my role of VP of Product and Community Development and join this team. We've now also acquired Bonk Breaker and we'll be acquiring two other brands. And yeah, so that's what I do. I work on product development. We're developing some new flavors right now. And then I also, like I mentioned, I get to be out in the community and we, I, I get to lead all of our brands and make sure that we have at our heart and soul, we are an accepting platform. We have a diverse group of athletes and ambassadors, We're inclusive. We're thinking about doing the right things for the environment and sport and all of those, you know, amazing things that I like to focus on. So sorry, that was not two minutes. That was like five
0: minutes. That's okay. And know I appreciate the entrepreneurial journey and that's a great outcome and amazing that the vision can now be propelled forward, you know, with the distribution that maybe you weren't going to be able to achieve this company can get it out there even further and allow you to focus on what you love. Exactly. That's fabulous and allow you more time to start things like gravel races in your yes. hometown. Yes. So let's talk about that. I mean, I love talking to event organizers because I think it's such a there's such an art behind creating an experience that is native to the community that you're in and showcases everything you want to showcase. I feel like it's like a love letter to your community when you design a gravel course. And I I love designing courses here in Marin. So I'd love to hear about the inspiration for last best ride. And then let's talk about the details. Let's get the listener stoked to put it on their calendar.
1: Okay. Well, I think to back up a little bit, when we first started spending a lot of time here was in 2020 during the pandemic when we realized we weren't going to be doing any racing and we kind of did the thing that everyone was doing we scattered to a smaller place only this is my home and we also bought a piece of land at that time which turned out to be total baller move that we had no idea was going to be like the best decision of our lives but i think we so to sam's point about being adventurous he started exploring and making these gravel Routes for us, these crazy off road routes, and he didn't even have a gravel bike yet. But he was taking me places that I had never been after growing up here. And remember the first gravel ride we did? You did it on your road bike, that old yeah. KTM bike. And yeah. it, like, we ride this route consistently now. And we're like, How on earth did you ride this on your road bike? Like, it's like when you don't know any better when you first start. Exploring off road, like you might throw some wider tires on your road bike, and you're like, "Oh yeah!" Like, so we were kind of exploring and realizing that this place is prime for a gravel event. I had also my first event the season before was our friend Ted and Laura King run an event in uh, Vermont called Rooted Vermont, and the little town they're from, Richmond reminded me of Montana and attending that event, having such an amazing time and knowing that gravel was a place that I wanted to be. I thought that they're just nailing it, like how the, the community embraces this event. It's super low key. They make a whole weekend out of it. And I told Laura, I said, Man, whitefish really needs an event like that. It's so incredibly beautiful here. So I think we started exploring more and then I'm pretty sure I made you ride like an old steel gravel bike of mine. Remember that? It yeah, was like did. two sizes too small for you. And then he ordered a gravel bike yeah. and we just like, I don't know how we went from, two rides to like the next day we were at the forest service office with our masks on, like knocking on the door where it's like appointments only. And we were like, hi, we would like to put on an event. <laughs> they were like, what? We're in the middle of a pandemic. Why would you, what are you talking about? And we're like, no, it's definitely the pan- The pandemic won't be here next year. Like we're looking at next year. Little did we know that it was going to be an extended, extended pandemic, but Luckily, we picked August as our month because you're pretty much guaranteed. My dad will tell anyone that comes here that he's seen snow here every month of the year. But if you're going to pick one month, August is a pretty safe bet. (laughs) So we picked August for our race. And that's, yeah, that's Mm -hmm. kind of how we started.
0: And and was the community embracing of it? Like, I know a lot of rural communities, when they hear about the prospect of a 1,000 athletes coming to town and booking hotel rooms and accommodations and food and all that stuff. They're super excited to get behind it. Were you experiencing that in Whitefish?
1: Well, there's been a little bit of a shift here and Whitefish, I believe this was the fastest growing town in the country during COVID, which is why when I mentioned us buying this little plot of land, we didn't know that was going to happen. I had a I had a theory. I was kind of actually obsessed about real estate at the time. I had a theory that something was going to happen because I remember what happened during the last recession. And so to your question, it's a little different here. It There's a lot of people that come here in the summer and Glacier Park has gotten so overrun that they now actually have a ticketed entry system. So it was sort of a balance of knowing that we already have a lot of tourism and this isn't a town that needs that tourism boost to survive. So we wanted to make sure that this event was going to be a net positive for the community and that our community was going to feel supported and that, again, that it's a positive. And so that's one of the reasons why we wanted it to focus around our scholarship. Yeah. And do you
0: want to describe what that scholarship looks like?
1: Yeah. So as I had mentioned before, growing up here, fairly low income, I did not have a college fund growing up. And I had a guidance counselor in high school my sophomore year that came to our classroom talking about college. And when I found out that it cost a lot of money to go to college, I had a little meltdown. And my dad actually took me to her office and we spent three years together working on scholarship applications. And I won so many local scholarships along with Pell Grant and federal aid that I didn't have any student loans for undergrad. And she just had this profound impact on my life, mostly just because she believed in me and she didn't hold my hand by any means. Like she made me do the work But I've always had this dream of creating a scholarship and giving that back to the community and finding young women who deserve to be uplifted and supported financially. So we figured this race was a good way to accomplish that goal. We both have our careers. We felt like it'd be a perfect way to invest back into the young people and the community. And I wholeheartedly believe that one of the best ways to get young people into cycling is to equip them with the ability to go out and either learn a trade or get an education and become, you know, get themselves into a place where financially they can afford a bike and they can enjoy that and incorporate it into their life. And they're empowered to do that. So it kind of, it's like, what does a bike race have to do with the scholarship? But it, as Sam put it, he wrote in the tech guide, like simply by attending this race, you are bettering the lives of young women in our area who are, you know, in have financial need but also have academic merit. So
0: yeah, what's interesting as well is I think just the sh- the sh- participation levels in the community. People who aren't cyclists are going to notice that it's happening and. They're going to see and hear that, oh, a scholarship comes out of that. So maybe it even helps some of these younger women become aware that scholarships are available and that a path towards a higher education is possible with these, you know, following the same path you did.
1: That's so interesting that you just brought that up because I learned fairly recently that one of our recipients from last year, her friend read about the scholarship and. Her friend did not have financial need, but she, she drug this young woman down to the counselor's office and said, You have to apply for this. And she didn't think that she even deserved or like knew that she could have that opportunity. And then she ended up being our top recipient. Amazing. So that's a really good point. And that it's like something that I, I want these young women to know that like you, You deserve a chance and like at least apply for it. This year we have five recipients. Mm -hmm. So, and I'm about to go to the scholarship nights at the schools in the next couple of weeks and, and actually give the awards out. But we also have seven land permits. So it's pretty, it's an arduous um, task with the land permits. And I know that, you know, the people who are at the head of these entities, it does mean something to them that. You know, it's not just a bike race, it's for-profit.
0: Let's talk about the courses. It sounds like you're going through a lot of different types of properties. So what's the gravel riding like in Whitefish? Awesome.
2: I would say it varies from, you know, depending on where you are in the valley where we live, it can vary from champagne gravel to straight up single track, the way that we like to ride. But the courses themselves traverse through a, I would say, a pretty wide variety of surfaces. So both routes will take a route that heads east out of town, and you will go up through some logging roads that are owned by a local lumber and logging company who are wonderful they are wonderfully supportive of the event and that will then transition you into forest lands which is where most of I would argue what 90 percent of our race takes place on 80 to 90 percent of our race and once again the forest Service are wonderfully supportive of the event as well and we appreciate everything that they've done to help us they were actually the ones who were, one of the most ardent supporters in the beginning, when we were trying to design routes that were cool. And they were the ones encouraging us saying, this is exactly what we would love public lands to be used for is this kind of recreation that is based in exploration and, you know, cyclo eco-friendly tourism. So then we'll, the routes then traverse through forest lands that pretty much wind your way through a bunch of the mountain roads up north of town, so northeast of town. They will then bring the riders back to a dividing point where there will be an aid station where the short route will then take some more of those Forest Service roads through some single track trails onto mountain property. So we have a local ski resort, Big Mountain Ski Resort, that has also helped us immensely in providing sections of their property for our route. And that will basically direct riders up to a section of the mountain road where they can then explore some of the single track there and then head back down into town. The long route diverts back to where, close to where we started, and then they start heading up north along what is called Lakeshore Drive, which is a beautiful picture road, exactly as it says, which borders the east side of uh, Whitefish Lake. And you make your way north along this road and it will pretty much on a line transition to gravel. Depending on the time of year, it can be either champagne gravel, it can be kind of rutted if it's rained, or it can be straight up washboard. So you get, you don't know what you're going to get. Typically, it's fairly dry and it's seen a lot of traffic because that is nearing the end of huckleberry picking season. So a lot of locals will go out that road to some of the secret huckleberry spots that I don't even know where they are because they're so secret. But So it can typically be a little washboard, but that will head north all the way to a road called Warner Peak. There is some road name, technically most of the roads around here are called Forest Road or Forest Service Road, big old number. And I should know this because I designed the route, but I, I get confused in all of the digits, but it's commonly and locally known as Warner Peak. So you bank you take a right and you start climbing it's about a six mile climb from the turnoff of what is upper whitefish lake to the top of warner peak and that basically deposits you onto this ridge line that overlooks the entirety of the valley it truly is on a clear day a stunning picturesque view and that surface transitions from the kind of predictable typical valley, country, Champagne-esque gravel road to pretty rocky technical climbing. And the gradients aren't hellaciously steep in that section, but they are steep enough where you're going to be going slow and you're going to be needing to have some technical savvy to be able to navigate around some of the bigger rocks and sections. And there are also some drainage pipes that are laid across the road to help ease snow melt, washing away some of the road. So if you can practice a little like bunny hopping or lifting your front wheel and back wheel whilst climbing.
1: it's I like I'm it. To summarize. It's one of the hardest climbs I think you'll find in a gravel race. Yeah, the climb. hardest
2: climb you'll find in a yes. gravel race comes shortly thereafter. Um, you descend down the ridgeline that takes you to the backside of the of big mountain ski resort. Now, the course then takes riders to the top of Big Mountain, the absolute peak where the summit house is. And this is where the ski resort basically has all of their chairs going to the very top. To get to that, you go up what we have called the, uh, the Mountain Goat Scramble. Bighorn Sheep Bighorn, Bighorn sheep
1: Scramble. Bighorn
2: Sheep Scramble. And basically, we discovered this ride on or this way up on a ride that we did. Early in 2020, when we were kind of just moseying our way to the backside, and we found ourselves kind of running along the ridgeline of all the ski slopes, and we're kind of looking up and seeing all the ski runs, and we finally made our way to a service road, and we said, ooh, let's turn up that. How high can we go? And apparently, you can go the highest you physically can, but to do so, you have to go up what is essentially a wall of roughly 35 percent average gradient for 300 meters, the longest 300 meters of your life. And but is it
0: actually rideable?
2: So, so was. there are two people that we know who have ridden it on a bike, one of which is me. The other is one Caleb Swartz, who is a Marion University alum who rode for the Bear Dev team and recently completed a really stellar uh, cyclocross campaign as a privateer rider. Who lives in Missoula? He trains a lot with Howard Gratz and some of the local Missoula hitters. He rode his XC bike at the race, and he was the only person in the race to ride up the entire uh, scramble without take unclipping and walking his bike.
0: All right, there's um, a big challenge for you people out there. Yeah, big challenge.
2: <laughs> so you get to the summit house. There's a feed station, then you descend down another climb. It's called Taylor Creek, which takes you back to Upper Whitefish Lake Road, and you go back the way you came out back into town.
0: Right on. So tell me the distances of the short course and the long course.
1: So the short course is 47 miles with about 4,500 feet of climbing, and the long course is 90 miles with about 8,200 feet of climbing. We might have to make a couple tweaks. We know we have to make a couple tweaks to the short course this year because of some logging that's happened, but it will be similar within that range. So, it's a good it's a it's a good distance. Like the the pro dudes last year, Ted and Howard and a local guy named Andrew Andrew Frank. Andrew Frank. They we could not believe this. They finished in just under 5 hours. We we were expecting like a 5:15. But I would say on average, the short course would take you around three and a half to four and a half hours. And the long course would be closer to like, I don't know, six, six to seven hours if you're relatively cruising. But Mm -hmm. it can be a a huge range because it's just such a a hard course. To the benefit of...
2: the three finishers we'd mentioned in their super fast time, the road, Taylor Creek, the descent that you take back down into town had just been basically flattened by logging equipment. So it wasn't really the gravel that Jess and I had previewed throughout the summer, but it actually was so packed down because of the all highway. the, it was basically concrete was <laughs> what it was. And I remember I previewed it actually with Ted on Thursday before our race. And we were descending it, and we were looking at each other and saying, like, people are going to rip this. Because, I mean, you didn't even have to worry about dodging any kind of rocks or ruts or anything. It literally was just smooth pavement made out of mud that had been yeah. flattened.
1: And it it rained also, which, yeah. well, we, we say our race is predicated on the views because – I don't think that as Sam went through this course, like you cannot describe these views. They are jaw dropping. When we ride here, we're riding it all the time and it never looks the same. It's there's just so amazing. But then it poured rain, which cleared out all of the wildfire smoke. So that was the benefit. And it was very foggy the morning of the race and people still, it was like a, just like I said, a different kind of view, but (laughs) that we, I was like calling the medical volunteers, like we need to put someone, we need like two people going on that descent, like two medical stations, because I was so afraid that someone was going to be doing like 60 miles an hour down this gravel descent and just fly off into space. But it turned out that we had, I think, One of the most advanced medical plans, the Forest Service actually asked us if they could keep the template of it to use as an example. And we treated a bee sting and that was it. (laughs) So the other side, yeah, when you become an event director, you're pretty much just stressed out the whole time about someone getting hurt or something going
0: wrong. 100%. So it sounds like with a fairly rowdy course, you need some pretty capable tires. Is there a size that you recommend?
2: Uh I mean I am of the camp of you should run as as big as you can. It's a, it's a big debate for us on our course because we know again given the conditions of really the back sections of the course and the climb like I think the debate is now whether a hardtail mountain bike is the fastest bike for our course, but there there are a lot of sections where having a pretty rigid, snappy gravel bike where you can just easily put out power very consistently would help, but tire-wise... As wide as you can run. I mean, I think nothing
1: less than the 36. Yeah. You, you will not be, you will not have a fun guy.
2: 30, 36 is the minimum that you can do to, I would say, like, complete the ride. You will not be comfortable. You won't necessarily be happy, but you'll be able to get through it. Yeah. I ride the roads and certain courses around here on my Crux, my specialized Crux, which is a 2019 model that clears the 38. And I'm pretty comfortable on that bike. I don't ever feel really that I'm under And I, when it's fairly dry and I'm not worried about getting mud in my stays, I will, I can clear a 42 on that bike. And I would say if I could run that consistently without worry of, you know, starting to take pain off, I'd run a 42 yeah, easily. I yeah. And I would say yeah. that that's probably most gravel bikes will clear a 42 minimum, but that's the that's the
0: base. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I mean, I think that's one of the interesting things about taking a survey of all the gravel events out there. It's interesting seeing what people recommend. And I'm always, frankly, more attracted to the races that are saying, bring your big tires. You're not going to regret it because it means they're getting creative with course design and really pushing the limits and capabilities of both the athletes and the bikes. So to onto some just nuts and bolts. What are the event dates and where can people find out more information about the event and are there still slots available this year?
1: So our date is Sunday, August 21st, and we have a welcome happy hour and scholarship fundraising evening on Friday, August 19th. The packet pickup and some little community rides are Saturday, August 20. Our website is thelastbestridemt, as in montana.com. We have been sold out for some time. We do have a wait list. It's pretty big. So if you got on the wait list now, unfortunately, you're probably planning for 2023, which is actually good because I don't even know if you could find a hotel room or an Airbnb (laughs) at this point in Whitefish. It's... we send out early communication like before Christmas, the year before, letting people know, like, here's our links to our favorite camping and hotels. And like, here's how to make your life easier to plan to come to this little area. I just want to say as an aside, because we do talk up this course as being hard, it, it was also very important to us that it is something that you could do if you're trying your first event And our short course is manageable for anyone trying your first event. And we even have different start waves for the event for people who have different goals. If you want to hang out and meet friends, if you want to, you know, ride a little more steady, or if you really want to like, you know, go full gas. Just to introduce that, like, you don't have to start in the front and like elbows. So I really want to emphasize that our long course definitely fitness would be the biggest challenge if you're, you know, newer to gravel, but it is inclusive.
0: And then finally, what's the post finish line experience like? What have you designed there?
1: Well, that was really, that was really important to us. And again, we wanted to focus on like our local vendors. And so we have above average race food. We have a local chef named Tim Good. He has a catering truck. He owns a restaurant here and he has a catering truck called The Cuisine Machine. So last year you would find mac and cheese, you'd find cornbread, chicken marsala, pork chops with huckleberry barbecue sauce, watermelon salad. And then we had our local ice cream company out and we had huckleberry ice cream, which is specialty to Montana. We had one, they made one for us called Gravel Road. And then we had beer vendor, wine vendor, and a local kombucha vendor. And all participants received two drink coupons so they could use it however they wanted. Yeah. Yeah. What else? Oh, and we offered bear spray. We never even touched touched on the wildlife in this area. But yeah, we also sell bear spray and highly, highly recommend that you ride with it and know how to use it.
0: (laughs) Well, we'll let people do their own research as they're thinking about 2023 for this. I love getting these types of events out on people's radar. We realize they are not unlimited capacity. So you've got to be able to plan ahead. And I, for one, really love traveling to new areas and experiencing gravel around the country. It just reminds you of what a special place the United States can be, and how much amazing outdoor activity is is right there in our own country.
1: We would love to have you up here. I mean, if you can come this year, we, we'll we know the person. Find
0: can, one special slot, nice find that
1: special slot for you. But <laughs> if twenty twenty three works better, we would love to have you up here. And yeah,
0: thank you for that, and I appreciate both your time. It's great to get to know you, and I, and again, I hope everybody checks out last last best ride i'll put a link in the show notes and we'll make sure everybody knows how to find you
1: guys thank you so much hope to see everyone in montana
0: that's going to do it for this week's edition of the gravel ride podcast big thanks to sam and jess for joining us i love the sounds of what they've created out there in montana and certainly hope to visit it someday myself i'll be sure to put appropriate links in the show notes if you need any more information about last best ride huge thanks to our sponsor the feed Remember, you can get 50% off the feed formula. Just visit thefeed.com slash thegravelride. If you're interested in connecting with me, I encourage you to join the ridership. Just visit www.theridership.com. It's a free global cycling community based in the Slack channel. You can visit us and communicate with other gravel cyclists all around the world. If you're able to support the podcast, please visit buymeacoffee.com slash thegravelride. Additionally, ratings and reviews are hugely helpful in my discoverability and my goal of connecting with as many gravel cyclists as possible. Until next time, here's to finding some dirt under your wheels.